Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. I'm on holiday this week and if you don't stop talking about Brexit, I might not come back. I said this week's episode is a recording of an interview I did with Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservative leader, at the incredible Signet Library in Edinburgh. It was a special Times Plus event for Times subscribers where we sat down to discuss her new book, Yes, She Can. Of course, we discussed Brexit and Boris Johnson and her ambitions or not to be Prime Minister. But what was also really nice was being able to sit down with a politician and discuss some things other than politics. We talked about her upbringing, her background, her frank admission about her own mental health problems in the past and how she is preparing for imminent motherhood. But I began by asking her why she decided to write the book in the first place and why she was so keen to stress that it's not a memoir. After the Brexit referendum debate in uh, Wembley last two years ago now, um, I got lots of nice letters from um, people that didn't live in Scotland who were unaware that I'd already led the Tory party in Scotland for five years and thought I was this new face on the political scene, (laughs) uh, when actually I was a bit of an old-timer. And one of them came from from a publishing company that said, you've got quite interesting things to say. Have you ever thought of writing things outside of politics? Why don't you come down and and have a chat? And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've... got a fine degree in English literature from Edinburgh University that I've never used in my entire life. Um, <laughs> do you know what? How hard can writing a book be? Let's go and go and find out and ask. Uh, turns out really hard, really, really hard. But um, I went down and they were asking me, so is there anything that you kind of want to, to, to write about? And I said, well, actually, I've got this brilliant idea of doing some inspirational women, chapter by chapter, because this was the Me Too movement had just started, all of this kind of thing was coming on the public consciousness. Um, We were coming up to the 100-year anniversary of the first women in the United Kingdom getting the vote. Um, I said, look, I I think there's a moment here, and what I would love to do is just have me not in it at all and just have 
women talking in their own words about it. And they said, yeah, we, we love that idea, but if we're going to give you any money, you have to be in it. So um, I was like, all right, okay. You're not just so, transcribing well, what other people have well, said. Well, there was a, a lovely book that I remember reading from Dylan Jones, uh, which was called Cameron on Cameron. Yeah. And he basically followed David Cameron around before he became prime minister um, for several weekends. And he just wrote up things that Cameron had said. He spent like 36 hours at a time with them over several weekends. Um, so he must have, you know, spent quite a long time over the course of a year and there wasn't a single annotation from from the author in it saying and then he did this or and then he looked like that and it, and it flowed really well and, and there's a there's a, a technique to doing that that's quite hard actually to, to do um, and that's what I had envisaged and they said no to that idea so um, so it ended up being uh, we, we compromised on me writing some introductions and doing some stuff of my own thoughts and maybe some of my own background and some of my own experiences and also um, these amazing sort of women who have excelled in areas that are either dominated by men, so there's loads more men like science and tech and business and politics, religion, the armed forces, or where women and men get treated hugely differently, like sport, like the entertainment industry, like Hollywood, so and, and like te British television. So that was the two ideas. And then when we decided on the, the kind of areas, that's where we started approaching the women. And there's some fantastic people in there, um, some of whom you'll have heard of, so people like Catherine Granger that have won, you know, five Olympic gold medals, um, some person called Theresa May, but also people from other countries that you probably won't have heard of. So there's a, a fantastic Syrian doctor called Rola Halam, who over the last few years has set up six children's hospitals during the civil war and her experiences of trying to get in and out of Syria and to, to do that sort of thing. Uh, and this amazing Indian ninja who has trained more than 10,000 of India's special force uh, soldiers. So their equivalent of the SAS, she does their close quarter battle training and their small arms training. So she's literally the only woman on base when she's, you know, teaching the hardest men in the subcontinent how to kill people. So, I mean, they are fascinating studies, absolutely fascinating women. And how did you go about coming up with the list? Was it you had one and then it, it was there any, any connection? Oh, complete or? and total self-indulgence. <laughs> who, who do I want to speak to uh, and what do I want to ask them? So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's in a sense, it is quite a personal book to me because these are people that I am very interested in. But one of the things that I loved about being a journalist and particularly a broadcaster, which I did for 10 years before I, I, I um, put my name on a ballot paper, was I actually loved that responsibility of asking the questions that I thought the people at home wanted to know. Um, and there's some amazing um, sort of ways in which women have opened up in there and they all kind of knew that part of it was I wanted to speak to them because they'd done something that nobody else had. And I wanted to talk about that success. But part of it was, I also wanted them to open up about how hard it had been. Because quite often, we seem to think that people who are in the public eye or have won awards or um, you know, have reached the top have had it really easy. And actually, none of these women have. And part of the deal was, they also had to tell me about this sort of crying into the pillow in the night sort of stuff. And, and to be fair to a woman, they all did. And it was, you know, I think it was really brave of them. Some of these stories have never been told before. You have in the book, of, uh, uh, well, there's lots of interesting turns of phrase and very Ruth Davidson turns of phrase. <laughs> but you had one in particular about the impression that when somebody becomes successful, the impression that they are perfect and all has been fine. Yeah, I think the phrase I used was, 
if somebody's famous, it's because they eat sunshine and shit rainbows. Um, I think is probably the phrase. That was the phrase. Was that, that the phrase? Yeah. But I think that, that I, I think that becomes more and more applicable, and not just for famous people. So for famous people, that's definitely true. So if you know you've got a, an Oscar winner or something like that, you know their publicist goes to huge um, sort of trouble to try and make sure that they're always smiling, they're dressed in couture, they're dripping in diamonds, they look perfect all the time. Um, but even for people who aren't famous, we all cultivate our own social media feeds. We all see, you know, on Facebook, everybody's puts pictures of themselves out having some great time clinking glasses with hundreds of friends. And, and actually, if you're having a pretty tough time yourself and, and you just see everybody else is having fun and you're sitting at home in your pyjamas having Weetabix for tea, you know, you can feel a bit shitty about yourself. And um, I think part of it was to demonstrate that even if you're having a tough time now, you know, everybody has tough times, but that doesn't need to stop you. And I think that's quite a hopeful message. One of the things that really uh, struck me was so many of the stories were quite similar. People, people who'd gone on to be incredibly successful seemed to have caught off and lost a parent early on or suffered some trauma or yeah. something that happened in their lives which brought them up short but then gave them either the drive or sometimes the confidence to go off and do things. Was that something that you, that you were well, I conscious mean, I, of? I think that women are tough. I think they're resilient. And one of the things that I love about women um, and it's not unknown that I love women, um, is that, just, just for anyone that wasn't aware, uh, um, one of the things that I love about women is, is that they can suffer great hardships without choosing to become hard themselves and can actually use that experience to help other people on the way up. And, and one of the reasons that, that these women who had no reason particularly to speak to some wee lassie from Scotland that was writing their first book and they didn't know what it was going to be and was asking them for all their deep, dark secrets, one of the reasons for talking for, to me was because they wanted to show the next generation how, how it could be done and to, to just make it that bit easier and, and, and to smooth the path a little bit. And, and I, think, you know, I think that's inherently virtuous. In the sections of which you did write about you, which you, mm. di you didn't want to, you, you talked about your own apparently never-ending um, childhood <laughs> traumas of uh, you were run over and then... Uh, well, just talk us through it briefly. Just talk us through the, yeah, I have the, a, the th three stages of... Yeah, I have a sort of cavalier disregard for personal safety. I think it's <laughs> I think that, the best way of describing it. So, um, so, yeah, I got run over by a truck outside my house when I was five. So I spent quite a lot of time in the sick children's hospital, the old sick kids just over the meadows there um, growing up and had to do the kind of um, learning how to walk again. And, and um, Actually, one of the most traumatic things about that whole period was um, my parents were asked if um, it would be okay if I was used as an example for some of the medical students because they pioneered a new type of leg setting on me because I broke um, my leg in several places. I fractured my pelvis. My femoral artery was crushed, so I've got a massive kind of scar all the way down here and had my cannel set sitting outside of me and stuff. If, and when you're five, like, it's absolutely terrifying to be sort of pushed in front of an amphitheatre of, you know, 300 people kind of going up into the sky and then whipping the covers off and as somebody like lectures about you for an hour. So, I mean, genuinely, like, as in quite howling, like, this is really quite upsetting. Um, this is quite tame by comparison. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, you know, public speaking, they always tell you to imagine the audience naked, but, you know, when it's yeah. the audience looking at you and you're there for an hour and it's chilly and you're only five, it's, it can be not much fun. But, um, yeah, so, so the kind of... Being the only kid in my primary school with a Zimmer frame, having to learn how to walk again, um, 
And when you're a kid, you don't really understand. So you just want to be as good as your pals at stuff. So learning how to climb trees and play football and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think looking back, the most remarkable thing is my parents, actually, because if that was me and my child had had a really difficult experience, I think I would have wanted to wrap them up in cotton wool. And, and they let me do all of the things um, that I could do and, and let me sort of join the local boys football team. And it is actually probably my proudest moment that I'm the first girl to play for Largo under 14's boys football club. Um, <laughs> you know, it, like nothing in my life. Like that's the high point. Were I've you the peaked. last as well? I've peaked at 12. What's that? <laughs> Were you the last as well? Or did they... No, no, I think there was one other girl. Oh, okay, um, certainly in, in my kind of generation when I was still living in Fife. So, uh, so there was one other girl. So, so yeah, so that was one. And then about 15, 20, 20 years after that, I'd be about 25, yeah, about 20 years after that, um, I was in the Territorial Army and I jumped head first through a window frame on command and landed badly in some sort of sandpit in the snow, which was like concrete, and broke my back in three places um, and ended up in Salisbury General Hospital. So every time the Skripal poisoning comes on the television, <laughs> I go, oh, that was my ward, yeah. Um, so I was in there for a bit and then got discharged with a back brace, which I had to wear for three months and stuff like that, so... Yeah. Like I say, I'm quite clumsy, but I'm very enthusiastic. Yeah, very enthusiastic. You talked about, uh, in the Sunday Times, you talked yeah. about your experience when you were at university. And I think everyone who's, who read it would have been struck by your honesty about the mental health problems that you had. What, just explain if people didn't read it, what happened? But also I'm just quite interested in, in what it's like putting it out there so publicly? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I came to university at 17. I went to Edinburgh Uni, and um, I think, although you couldn't have told me that at the time, I would have ripped your head off if, you, if you'd said it at the time. I think I was too young, probably, to, to go. Um, and I, I really struggled. I'd come from Buckhaven High School, just a, a few sort of dozen miles away, um, where there was 330 pupils started. We had a really big cohort in my first year and there was only 90 still there by sixth year because people left at 16, 17. So not that many people from my school went on to university. I was the first generation of my family, me and my sister, to go to uni. Um, and when I got to Edinburgh, I was really struck by the fact there were so many folk that weren't like me. So loads of people that were from like the home counties and had done a gap year in Borneo tending to orangutans or in Tanzania building orphanages and you those, know they were those all, people are the worst well they were, <laughs> and, you know they're like lovely people but um they were all like 2021 20, they'd all done a levels whereas i'd done scottish hires they had the most amazing bulletproof confidence they all wore like puffer jackets and gilets and drove volkswagen golfs and like they, <laughs> they all knew each they other really and, and, and like it's the first time in my life i'd ever been asked what school i'd gone to because it didn't mean anything to yeah. me do you know like it, it was it was it was properly just different and I, I, I really kind of struggled and doing an arts degree you know it's massive lecture theatres nobody cares if you turn up or not there's no structured time anything like that and I got properly lost and then you know it, it so I had all of that sort of stuff going on and then a, a friend from back home had committed suicide and he had also been run down on the same stretch of road that I had a couple of years after me and it, the, it's the oddest thing because we weren't really close um, he was the year above my sister at school his dad used to, to um, uh, was, was a teacher of, of mine and he'd lived across the road from me since I was five so I, I knew him we had loads of pals in common but we weren't like he wasn't one of my best mates or anything like that and um for whatever reason, that was just this massive trigger for me to just 
kind of completely have a bit of a meltdown. And, um, and I was diagnosed with clinical depression. And um, I think we've learned a lot in the last 22 years. Um, at that time, I'm not sure the treatment I was given was, was brilliant. So it was just like, here's some pills, off you go, come back. Things are still really terrible. Actually, they're worse. Right, let's just double your dose, off you go. And um, yeah, and it, and it was it was pretty tough. Um, but you kind of get through things and you kind of work your way through things. But, um, but it wasn't an easy time. And, and how did it feel bringing this out into the public, writing about it in the book? When you're sort of sitting there and yeah. you think, oh, I'm going to tackle this, knowing that it's going to go out in the world and people who see you as being this confident, gregarious... <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, your, your big personality comes across as very confident and gregarious and, and uh. to open yourself up in that, that vulnerability, um, lots of people wouldn't have done it and for entirely understandable reasons. Yeah, I mean, I um, actually have wanted to do it for a while. I've kind of felt compelled to do it for a while. Um, about two, three years ago, I was speaking with one of the really big mental health charities in Scotland, um, Sam H, who are in and out of the Parliament all the time. We do loads of work with them, and I had done lots of work with them, and had said, you know, I, I want to do this, but I want to kind of do it in a way that I feel like I, I own it, and, and I, I don't really want to, to do it with a newspaper because they'll interpret it, and, and it'll, you know, I, I don't know, I won't then be able to control it. So, actually, when the book came along, it was, in a sense, a way in which I could. And it's a really odd thing to kind of explain, but it, it did feel a little bit like a compulsion because I think if... You know, I've, I've been in this job for quite a while now, about seven years, and both the defeats and the victories are on the board. You know, people can see for themselves that, if nothing else, by God, I've lasted. <laughs> you know, and in Scottish politics, that isn't always true. It's, it's a pretty robust sport, Scottish politics. But I, I think if I ever walked off the stage many years from now, I hope, uh, after having achieved a, a few more things, and I'd never, ever let anybody know, I would feel like I had sort of failed people, because it would have made such a difference to me when I was 18 to have heard anyone talk about this, and nobody did back then. I mean, we're talking more than 20 years ago now, and just to know that it wasn't a full stop, because I really did think that all of the hopes and dreams that I had for myself probably weren't going to happen, because this, this I had this thing. Mm. Um, and it's not like that. Um, and I think the way that we still talk about mental health, it's, it's got so much better and the stigma is so much further moved. But one of the issues that I have is we quite often talk about it as if um, either it's a full stop and it's not, or we talk about it as if, well, I had it once and now I'm cured. And it's kind of not like that either. So I was wanting to try and make the point that... Um, you know, you can, you can manage this and you can just keep tabs on yourself and you, you actually probably end up knowing yourself better um, at, you know, once you've kind of gone through this and are able to make decisions about your own health and the things that you do um, and the way in which you can make choices in your life in a much more informed way and, and that it's not a full stop, you know. And, and I just hope, I mean, even if, you know, it's quite a high-stakes thing to do, I'm not sure that you know, every headline that's been written since I was delighted with. Um, and, you know, certainly my Twitter feed has been a pretty messy business for the last wee while. I think I would have been disappointed in myself if I'd never told people. One of the things that you talked about, because there is not an interview that goes by where you're not asked, do you want to be Prime Minister? Oh, Are God, you going I know. It's so boring, isn't it? Are you going... <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you. Because <laughs> not, you gave... not this time, Matt. No, You've done it every yet. other yeah, interview yeah, you've exactly, ever given yeah. me. Uh... Yeah. And, you, and you still gave the story to the Sunday Times. Now... Um, <laughs> 
But in the, in the interview in the Sunday Times, you, t- you talked again about why you didn't want to do it. And what you, one of the reasons you gave was because you were concerned about that you'd, you'd seen up close David Cameron and Theresa May and the, the pressure of doing that job. Well, do you know what's really interesting? I've been saying that for two years because mm. I've been being asked this question for about two years and it's all David Cameron's fault because he was asked who could be a possible successor <laughs> and he, he happened to be in Scotland at the time so he said me to be kind. Um, and <laughs> just to be a polite visitor and a nice guest, you know. He, apparently he was raised well, that boy, I don't know. Um, but um, it's kind of dogged me since then and it's all his fault. But, but I've been saying that for, for a really long time. You know, I, I value my relationship, I value my family, I value my mental health, I... And I've also tried to demonstrate the practical things and that, you know, I would at some point have to try and leave the Scottish Parliament, which I've not attempted to do in two years. I would have to, you know, want to up sticks and, and find a seat, which I've had no intention of doing. You know, I've, I've literally been saying no for two years. You know, I, I sound like the Dr Ian Paisley. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's been a lot of saying no's. Um, and for whatever reason, nobody believed me until this... And I think, actually, that's quite interesting because it shows that we do still need to have a conversation about mental health. If nobody believed all of these other things that ruled me out, why do they believe this? And that's a, that's a conversation that we do need to have. Some of the reaction to it has been... Some of it was incredibly positive, and people, you know, you, you, a lot of people praised you for being so honest. But there were some people who said that by conflating having a history of mental health problems mm. with ruling yourself out of doing a big job... But I'm not. In some way put I've got a big off. job I want to do, and it's right here in Edinburgh. You know, it's, it's at Butte House. Now, there were other people who said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there were, there were some people who said that you, by saying that your mental health history in some way ruled you out of being Prime Minister, but not of being First Minister, suggested it might be yeah. you, were, you were implying that First Minister wasn't as big a job. No, I don't think I was. What I was saying is that I don't want to build my home, my family, have my children here and then spend my working week 450 miles away from things that are more important to me than personal ambition. And my family is more important to me than personal ambition. And, and I, I don't think that's an odd thing. I think lots of people make decisions what is right for them. You know, I live three and a half miles from Butte House. I am the MSP for Butte House. I want to be the MSP in Butte House. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and, and Scotland is my home. You know, I am, I am of this place and uh, I am intensely ambitious for my country and I'm intensely ambitious um, for my party and I'm intensely ambitious for what we can do in politics in Scotland if we're not squabbling about the constitution all the bloody time. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I don't see a contradiction in that whatsoever in saying that, you know, I'm incredibly um, privileged and I get to see behind the door in, at number 10 Downing Street and I don't want it. What I want is here. And that's where my life is and that's where my family is and that's where my future is. So let's, let's talk about your family and your imminent departure from the <laughs> front line. The thing that really struck, struck me in the book, because it's something you keep on saying, mm. is that you can't just take a break. You can't have a rest. You're constantly doing things. I know people who work for you say that you're... I'm totally uh, hyperactive. You're t- basically like a bit of a nightmare. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, and so how do you think... And have been since I was a kid. How do you think so. you're going to... Because it will be a, a shift in gear. Yeah. How, will you go, how are you preparing for sort of for motherhood? Well, it's going to be one of two things. Either I'm going to walk away and have a child and, um, you know, make sure the stitches heal um, and all that sort of thing and then come back several months later and 
you know, have completely morphed into some sort of Earth Mother in, in, during that time. Um, or I'm probably going to be on the phone three times a day, every day, going, why are you doing it like that? Um, to the office. So it could work out either way, and I don't know. But um, I think the supposition that I'm going to find it very hard to be away from the office is based on the fact that I might not be overwhelmed by all of the things that you have to do with a newborn. And I'm... I have seen my sister, my sister's got four, and I've kind of seen it up close, and I think I might be quite busy you know, while I'm away. It's, I'm not having a four-month holiday, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, um, it, it might be a break from the office, but it's not going to be a break. How do you think the party will cope, be different? Because you've ha mm. you have been this sort of one-woman force almost, which is to transform the fortunes of the uh, Conservative Party in Scotland. That's not actually true, but I love it when people say that. Uh, <laughs> well, it was, it was part of the agreement for you coming. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> but no, I mean, we've been building a really good, strong team here. And, and yeah, I'm the front man because the leaders are always the front men. But, um, but no, we've got some front real woman. talent. Front Don't women. be sexist, come on. Sorry. Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> um, but, but no, I mean, we've been building a really strong team. And my deputy, Jackson Carlo, that's taken over... Uh, has been my deputy for the last seven years. God love him um, for putting up with me. But, you know, he's going to be grand. He's going to be super. And, you know, we have built a robust team around what we do in Parliament, how we hold the SNP to account. When we're down in Westminster, the new MPs are, are, have been in for more than a year now. So they've, they've found their feet. They know what they're doing. I'm fairly confident. I mean, it, I, I used to work in radio and the way in which presenters, so DJs and things in commercial radio, they were always desperate that the person that depped for them when they went on holiday and deputised for them was good enough that they didn't lose any listeners, but not so good that they got replaced. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of feeling that sort of trepidation. So I, I want Jackson to be good, but not that, not that good. good. So <laughs> I do still want a job to come back to, yeah. if that's all right. So yeah, so that, that's my, my kind of concern. It's making sure that both of these things happen. I feel like it's sort of mm. duty-bound. In fact, one of the things, while you are off, we are going to cross another one of Nicola Sturgeon's deadlines for updating us on her thinking for when she might or might not ask for a yeah. second referendum. She, <laughs> again. She, again. But she, again. she said it would be in October this year. What do you think will happen? What's, what's, where do you feel like the debate is? Well, I think um, it's been made pretty clear that the make-or-break decision on, on Brexit and a deal between um, the UK and the EU is going to happen at the summit in October. And if there is enough progress there, there will be a kind of signing off, um, sort of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, heads of terms agreement in November. So I, I think, realistically, the, the kind of October update from the First Minister will move to November because that's, that's when things are going to happen. But, um, you know, she's been trailing this for months and months and months and the polls have not moved. You know, we are still where we were. There is no overwhelming kind of uprising looking for, for independence. And I, I think actually there's a weariness from people across Scotland to actually focus on things that matter day to day in terms of public services and the performance of schools in Scotland where we know we've got, we can do better uh, in terms of the economy. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, irrespective of, of some kind of street rallies that have happened um, around uh, the country in the last few months. I, I mean, I, I don't see a huge groundswell and, and pollsters and everyone else um, doesn't see it either. So I think there might be a fudge that's brought forward by the First Minister. But, you know, it's, it's up to her. She, 
she can ask and I can continue to say no. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've, we've been dancing that dance for a long time. I danced it with her predecessor. We can keep going. So, did, yeah. you, did you ask her to take part in the book? I, I didn't, no. Although she is in it, so she's quoted in it from a response to a New Statesman front cover. Oh, uh, yeah. But um, I didn't do a sit-in interview with her. We only kind of took one representative from each kind of discipline, really, and uh, the Prime Minister said yes, so... Um, if she said no, I could have thought of someone else. But, um, <laughs> but she very kindly said yes to me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. While we're on the Prime Minister, are you worried about how all this is panning out? I think anyone that says they know exactly what's going to happen is, is probably um, lying through their teeth. But, you know, when, like I say, I was a journalist for more than 10 years before I was a politician, and at the BBC we covered any number of European negotiations on any number of issues, and they all sort of followed the same pattern, which was quite a lot of brinkmanship quite a lot of people saying no before they said yes. Then lots of people at the sort of final hour locking themselves in a room to a hard deadline, the deadline passing uh, at midnight and then at 4am the next morning, you know, people bleary-eyed coming out of there to say that actually they'd found some compromise in the end. I mean, my view through all of this is that it is in everybody's interests, both the United Kingdom's and in the EU's, to make sure that there is a deal I still believe that to be the case. I still believe that there's political will on both sides. Uh, and we saw in some of the um, ameliorating statements from Donald Tusk that... Well, I mean, it's funny, because yesterday he was saying that Chequers was a big step forward. Today he's saying it's not going to happen, but we've got this other big meeting that's going to happen next month, and we think we can get there by then. People have to talk to their home audiences yeah. as well as talk to each other in the room. There's an awful lot of people who have elections coming up in the near future and have populist right parties or populist left parties who are talking to their home audiences as well, looking tough before kind of getting to the deal. And, and I expected people to negotiate hard. This is a big geopolitical issue. You know, of, of course it's concerning that we are still in a place where it is not clear to everybody exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. But I still think that there will be a deal. Do you still think that whatever the deal is, it won't be as good as the benefits of having stayed in the EU? 
Well, I'm a big fan of wider unions. I, um, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Uh, I like Scotland staying in the United Kingdom. I like, would have liked the United Kingdom to stay in the EU. I, I think that working in close cooperation with, with friends and allies and neighbours uh, gives you benefits beyond pounds and pence. Um, and I think that one of the big challenges post-Brexit is to ensure that people understand the, the United Kingdom still wants to carry its burden in the world and is still a good friend and neighbour and will still contribute uh, in all of these other ways, even if we're not part of this particular um, political union. You know, it, it's sad for me, uh, nobody is in any doubt where I stood during the Remain campaign. I was, you know, on the stage bellowing away as, as best I could uh, down in Wembley. But I'm also a Democrat and I can't sit here in Scotland and watch somebody like Nicola Sturgeon say, you know, vote in an independence referendum, it'll last for a generation, lads, and then a week past Tuesday afterwards saying, no, let's do it all again, just because we didn't like the answer, and say, you don't get to keep rerunning the question until you get the answer that you like, and then say that just because I've had an answer in a different referendum that, that wasn't what I wanted, that we had to disregard the views of 17 and a half million people. So don't get it wrong, this has been a hard couple of years for me in terms of politics and conflict of what I'm passionate about, what I believe in and, and what I, I want to see happen. But my role in, in this, I, I think, has been, or how I've seen it, is to best make sure that we people have the right, certainly people from Scotland and businesses and sectors, are able to speak to the negotiating team, to speak to ministers down south that are in the room so that they can explain what works for them, where they see opportunities, where they see risks, how we can mitigate those risks, how we can maximise those opportunities, and how we can do this in, in, in the best way, even if it's not what I wanted, um, and, and still not what I would choose. So um, it has been a time of, of great conflict for, for me and for lots of people in politics. But I, I have to say, in the last seven years, I've fought six national elections and two referenda. And the thing about elections is everybody understands what happens and who they can vote for and they know that they can change their mind and, and all the rest of it. The things about referenda is they push people into binary camps and that pushes people into tribes. And quite often the division and the dispute comes after. So the answer never actually solves, resolves the question. Um, and I would happily never fight a binary constitutional referendum again in my lifetime because I think it's poison politics in this country. And you've got to a stage now where, for some, they will only listen to your ideas on education or on health or whatever if you're already in their tribe. That sort of balkanisation or ulcification or whatever you want to call it in politics. And I think that's a shame because good ideas are good ideas no matter where they come from. And we're seeing all around the world the extremes getting louder and the centre getting quieter. And I think that's bad for politics everywhere. I really do. Yeah. There's been a, a lot of talk about the Prime Minister's future and whether she, having secured a deal, hopefully before Christmas, and then we leave the EU in March. There are, from all sides of, certainly the Tory party in Westminster, People saying, well, maybe then that's the time that you should yeah. pass on to a new generation. Is, is that the right time? Do you, would you support that? Do you know, I would really quite like some of my colleagues in Westminster just to shut up for a bit. <laughs> and just... <laughs> put their sharp elbows and their personal ambition away and just let the Prime Minister do her job and go into bat for the country and bring home a deal. That's what I wish more than anything for the next few weeks and months, genuinely, is it's absolutely right 
um, that people have had their say about what sort of Brexit they want, how they want to input and all the rest of it. But we're right down to crunch time now. We're talking weeks, not months. Um, we are sending the Prime Minister in to negotiate, sitting across the table from 27 other nations and the mass ranks of the institutions of the EU, and we're asking her to bring something back for the country. I don't care what you want your next job to be. Your job now is to get behind her and let her deliver for the country. Let the woman do her job. That's where I'm standing at the moment. And given the progress that you've made in Scotland, both in uh, Holyrood and in last year's general election, where you very much bucked the Conservative trend, um, what would happen to the Conservative Party in Scotland if Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg became Prime Minister? <laughs> well, I think it's incumbent on all leaders to be able to show that they can govern for the whole of the United Kingdom, and I'm not going to be drawn on your question because I was not born yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Always worth a go, though. I think our Prime Minister is, you know, whatever, you know, whether you're a Tory, not a Tory, uh, whether you are a Theresa May fan, not a Theresa May fan, uh, I think there will be a lot of people that look back on this period um, and recognise just how much resilience that she has shown. Um, and that, I mean, this is a tough job. I mean, I, I, you know, really, really tough. And there are days that I've spoken to her at, you know, seven in the morning or 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And if I had had the sort of day that she had had, either the day before or, or, or during that day, do you know, I think it would be hard to get me out from under the duvet. And, and, and I am hyperactive. Um, and her personal, in, her individual tenacity, her personal resilience of just keeping plugging away. Particularly, I mean, she never talks about being a type 1 diabetic. She never talks about now being sort of over 60 or any of that sort of stuff. But the resilience that she's showing under the most extreme pressure that, you know, we haven't seen in politics since the financial crash in 2008 and, and before then, for a couple of decades before that, is genuinely remarkable and astonishing she is just doughty in that i don't know is that an english word do you know doughty scottish yeah, no, no, word yeah, yeah doughty yeah, yeah. yeah she's just, we do use she's the same just... language well no but <laughs> but you don't but not say all of them you've got a few funny but you don't ones. I mean, yeah, 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 you yeah. don't say things like smur and herpel and no, drink no, and no stuff idea. like that so well, that's, yeah, sometimes... the, that's the weather yeah but um <laughs> but, i mean she is a genuinely doughty soul and and all of the the kind of cliches that are spoken about her about being about service and duty and responsibility and, and all of that. Um, they sound like cliches because everybody says it, but everybody says it who knows her because they know it is true. And she genuinely wants to deliver. And I do think that um, we might look back on this period and slightly marvel at just how many punches she took and just kept getting back off, off the canvas in order to try and get a deal for the country. Oops. Sort of, sort of a round of applause. Um, I just want to go back to the book. Um, mm. It is a great read. You can tell that you're a journalist because you know how to sort of rattle through a tale <laughs> or two. Um, it's quite easy to dip in and out of. Like, it's, it's a funny book. You'll see it's a, a kind of odd structure. So there's bits that are just women, like a little individual scene from their life or something that's happened to them that's in a chapter just by itself where it's supposed to be seeing behind the curtain so you feel like you know the person yeah. as well as... Um, interspersed through it, there is their opinions about some of the really big issues that are facing women in the world today. So they're eminently qualified to talk about the issues, but I also really wanted people to see, feel like they felt like they knew them a little bit. So it was designed for sort of women on the tube or on the shuttle down or on the bus on the way to work so you can dip in and out of it. So it's, it's not 
a really hard textual read. It's supposed to be quite, pardon me, quite accessible. And hopefully, um, people feel that they can dip in and out of it a little bit. So it was designed to be like that, although it is quite an odd structure, so bear with it. You'll get used to it, honestly. Uh, my, if anything, my only complaint about it mm. is the title. Because yeah. I think, actually, it, a lot of it applies as much to men it's women. And yeah, the, but you guys have had stuff written for but, you but, for years. But I it's think, like, give us this. Give us this one. But no, but because <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of what the, the lack of confidence, the, the worry that everyone else is doing well and you're not yeah. and all of that. I didn't, I, I didn't just read it because we were, we were meeting. I, I yeah, you did. <laughs> you were contractually obliged to. I could have not read it. I've done it, these things before without reading them. Well, that's true. That is, <laughs> I don't doubt that. Yeah, I don't doubt that. <laughs> But I uh, think, and one of the things that really struck me is that, that and I totally get why you've written the book, and as I've yeah. got two daughters, and I, t you know, I, mm. the, it, the, the message in it is totally the message I'd want them to have. But one of the things that really struck me, you talked about how when you first became the Scottish Tory leader, and uh, it was a huge deal for the Tory party, particularly in Scotland, that somebody who'd basically been in po politics for five minutes, uh, a woman who was gay, becoming the leader of the Conservative Party in Scotland was a huge deal. And you said that you, you got far more letters from young gay men seeing oh. you as a role model. And so I, the, the idea that your, your role is just about being a role model for women, yeah. I, th I think it probably goes, goes further than that. Well, I mean, I, I kind of, as I say in there, like, I'd never actually believed in role modelling before just because I'm the sort of person that's a bit cussed and if you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> that means that I'm going to do it just to show you that you're wrong. That's just kind of, I'm just a pain in the arse that way, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> Sort of, if, if kind of for context, going back to 2011, we'd had another bad election after about 20 years of stagnation and decline. We got about 12.5% of the votes. My, I was the only new MSP for the Tory party that got elected, and that was only because someone retired, so it was kind of dead men's shoes. My predecessor, Annabel Goldie, is a bit of a heroine of mine, and um, you know, she resigned on my first day in Parliament. <laughs> you know, so it, was, it, it wasn't great. And then we had this uh, leadership election. Um, where literally I'd come from nowhere and, and had been asked to stand and I didn't particularly want to because I wanted to learn um, my, my sort of trade on the back benches for a bit but was, felt that I, I was compelled to. Um, and it didn't occur to me, like genuinely didn't occur to me that anybody outside the three people in the Collie Dog who were the Conservative Party membership in Scotland at the time <laughs> um, would care who the Scottish Conservative leader was. And, and I was really surprised that I got quite a lot of correspondence and, and lots of emails. Almost all of them started, I'm not a Tory bot, which, you know, back then started <laughs> quite a lot of correspondence. Um, but it was folk that were saying, look, I'm, I'm out of school, but I'm not out to my parents. Or I've always thought that I could do politics. Or I was interested in it, but I never thought that I could do it because I'm gay. And, you know, and this is 2011. This isn't like... 1896, you know, and it, it really struck me that it mattered to other people that, not that I had got this job, but that somebody like me had got this job. And, and I, I sort of promised myself that I would never not answer the question if people asked me about my sexuality. I would never sort of try and pretend it didn't exist or anything like that, despite the fact there was a huge risk that I would then just get known as the gay politician because nobody knew anything about me. I'd come from nowhere. And I had lots of other things I wanted to talk about, lots of things to say. As you can tell, I talk a lot at length, very fast. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, really struck me that it sometimes matters that, that seeing somebody like you can help you. Um, and hopefully, in my best Presbyterianism, um, 
there was a sense of not, I'm going to go out and smash this role that I have no idea how to do and <laughs> half of my backbenchers didn't want me in it in the first place and most of Scotland doesn't really care about the Tory party and the rest of them hate us. Um, my, my first view was, just don't be shit. Just please, Davidson, don't be shit because I just don't want to embarrass other gay people. I, like, yes, there's loads of things I want to achieve. I want to play my full part in the referendum. I want to pick the party back up off the canvas. I want to be able to have a debate in Scotland, a political debate that's genuinely left versus right, that we can get that, that idea and the contest of ideas back because we hadn't had it for years in Scotland with the soggy left consensus. You know, there was loads of things I wanted to achieve, but overwhelmingly my reaction to those emails were, please, God, just don't let me be shit at this. I think, so, I, I think don't be shit would have been a good title for the book. Yeah, now, yeah, could have been, could have been, could have been, yeah. Inspirational message for everyone. Yeah. Uh, um, it's been an absolute pleasure with the book is uh, tremendous. I know you're going to um, enjoy it, but just the best of luck over the next few weeks. We look forward to all your tweets watching Homes Under the Hammer and whatever it is that you're, <laughs> uh, you're going to be oh, doing. Oh, please no, please no. <laughs> but no, the very best of luck. Uh, please do once again thank Ruth Davidson. Thank you very much. Thank you.